The Wicked Library welcomes a new sponsor for the remainder of Season 7, in addition to our fine sponsors at Road Microphone and Legends, Myths, and Whiskey Podcast. We now have Zombie Lips, and hopefully you don't have Zombie Lips, but if you do, you need to pick up their antidote. Designed to relieve conditions like eczema, poison oak, poison ivy, acne, bee stings, bug bites, and the endless ailments we all wish never happened that do. It's all natural ingredients, full body use, universal antidote to the human condition. It's a deep cleansing, accelerated healing, prodigiously antiseptic, pain relieving, pain reducing, antimicrobial carry along. They have a really cool website that's a lot of fun. Again, all natural ingredients. Check them out at zombielips.squarespace.com and click on Buy the Antidote to get yours. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com Do you like to listen? Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Welcome to our special episode of the Wicked Library for Women in Horror Month. The only male voice you'll hear in this episode is the librarian's. But it wouldn't be the Wicked Library without him. My name is Cynthia Lohman, and I'm the executive producer for the Wicked Library. Today's warning comes from Dead Air podcast co-host and Wicked Library alum, Lydia Peaver. We have two stories today, written by Eden Royce and narrated by Samantha Pleasant Labah of the Just a Story and Audio Dime Museum podcasts. Samantha will also be a guest writer on an upcoming episode of our other podcast, The Lift. I hope you'll stay tuned after the show for an interview with Eden Royce, conducted by our interviewer and frequent artist, Jeanette Andromeda of HorrorMade.com and Ninth Story Podcast. And now, Lydia Peaver. Hi, I'm author Lydia Peaver, and you're listening to The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library contains mature content and is not intended for sensitive listeners. If you're rattled by stories about demons, bloodshed, evil, foul language, and horror, this show is not for you. You have been warned. I've been at... Hmm, someone's here. I wonder who that can be. Well, as I don't live and don't breathe, Lydia Peaver, my favorite Canadian. Librarian, what are you doing in Canada? Oh, I heard you were doing the warning for the new episode, and I thought to myself that I've never come to visit. Um, I heard you've been killing the folks that read the warnings lately. All season, in fact. Well, yes. I'm not a huge fan of charlatans doing my job for me. This is true. I don't want to die, librarian. I thought we were 
you know, simpatico. Well, I have considered that, Lydia, and I must admit, it simply isn't in me to do you in, especially during Women in Horror Month. It is Women in Horror Month. You've always been a big supporter of that over the years. The Wicked Library wouldn't even exist without Women in Horror. Every month is Women in Horror Month. Well, that's certainly good to know. So you're not going to kill me? On the contrary. I was wondering if you wouldn't show me around Canada for a bit. I've been looking for some good back bacon. This batch here seems to be a little off. Yeah, let me see that. What's this design on it? This isn't back bacon. It seems to be an awful tattoo from your neighbor Carl's back. It tastes funny. This isn't back bacon, it's Carl. He never looked like he'd taste good anyway. I'll take you to get some proper bacon, without bad tattoos. Do you have any tattoos? I'd thought about it, but I lack something important. Like skin. <laughs> oh, librarian, you slay me. Oh, really? Can I? No, no wait, wait. No, it's a figure. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Go on, finish the warning, Lydia. The Wicked Library celebrates women in horror this February and every month. But please remember, listener discretion is advised. Just because we're women doesn't mean we won't scare the hell out of you. Well said. Now then, how about we tear up the town? That's what I'm talking about. Ooh, say it again. I do so love how you say about. Uh, about, about. About? (laughs) (laughs) Enjoy the episode. Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hand of Glory by Eden Royce Heat waves always brought out the murderers, and the grip Mother Nature had on Charleston's neck had everyone down for the count. I crushed up my cigarette before entering the interrogation room, then rubbed the wine-stained lipstick from my fingertips. The ancient central air conditioning couldn't keep up with the midday sun and the triple-digit temperatures it dragged with it. The room was hotter than Satan's bathwater. A two-way mirror was the only break in the flat gray walls surrounding a metal table where the suspect slumped, his wrist shackled. The man's eyes had a split near the outer corner, and while the gash wasn't bleeding, the flesh surrounding it had already begun to darken. Tell me it wasn't one of ours that did the shiner. I said to the burly, uniformed officer stationed in the corner by the door, his back to a wall. 
Officer Butter shrug. I don't think so. Great. I mumbled to myself. Just what this case needs. I tucked my white cotton blouse into my trousers and then marched over to the table and addressed the man in the chair. Good afternoon, Mr. Bird. My name is Gloria Jackson, and I'm the lead investigator on the Westbrook case. It's come to my attention that you were found with the victim's wallet. An eggshell-colored blob of mucus landed on the floor by my feet. When I looked up from the splatter, Bird was grinning at me, spittle clinging to his lower lip. Oh, so it's going to be that sort of day. Even better. I straightened my glove and continued where I'd left off. In your possession, and copious amounts of her blood were found in your car. I'd like you to tell me something about that. Fuck you. We have a verbal statement from you, but on listening to it again, I don't believe you've told us everything you know about the matter. Bird sucked his teeth and studied his reflection in the two-way mirror, but it was otherwise silent. His story was that he'd picked up Dana Westbrook, where she'd been hitchhiking off Interstate 26, near Monk's Corner. He said that the girl had told him that she was underage, although she didn't look it, so he hadn't tried anything. She was running away from home because her parents didn't get her, and she was going to be 18 in a couple of months anyway. Bird had gone on to say that the girl was unhurt when he picked her up, and was fine when he dropped her off at the bus station in North Charleston, some 30 miles away. His explanation for the wallet? She'd left her purse under the seat in his car. He even had an explanation for the blood in the passenger seat. It was her minstrel blood. She was bleeding like a cut pig, he'd said, laughing. I wouldn't stick myself in that. For hours, he's been questioned about her disappearance, but he hadn't said any more. The arresting officers knew it was him. I knew it was him. I needed to find Dana. Her parents and the entire city were waiting for news of her whereabouts. We hoped we would find her and bring her home safe. From the amount of blood and its pattern arcing through the car, I was afraid we were looking for a body, not an injured teenager, but if we couldn't get stronger evidence, most preferably Dana, we'd have to cut Bird loose. I knew that Bird knew that too. He'd been on the streets and in the game long enough to know police procedure as well as I did. Are you sure you don't want to tell me what you know, Mr. Bird? I ain't telling you jack squat. Oh, well, that's too bad, I said as I sat at the table across from him. I don't usually brag, but at this moment I have 100% conviction rate, and I'm pretty proud of it. Be ashamed to break that streak now, don't you think? I opened my notebook and braced it with my left hand and scribbled down a few lines. Disappearance of Tana Westbrook. Statement from Nathaniel Bird. Nate Bird frowned at my left hand, the black glove covering it, fitting tightly enough for the leather to look shiny and oiled. Then he snorted. Who are you, Michael Jackson? Gloria Jackson, I repeated. No relation, then. Could never get that moonwalk thing down. I clicked the pen closed and placed it next to the notepad. I passed both over to him. We need your written statement, preferably your confession. Or, Officer Butter here can record your confession if you'd prefer. Whether you believe it or not, I'm here to help you. 
I don't believe a word that comes out of your whore mouth. He jerked his chains and attempted to stand up, but they held fast. Officer Butters stepped forward from the corner of the interrogation room, where he'd been slouched after bringing Nate. Hey, hey, none of that. He turned his attention to the uniformed officer. And why not? You boning her? I see. Bird looked me up and down, as much as he was able to, sitting on the other side of a metal table. Too much woman for my taste. But the fat girls always have big tits. He giggled as if I'd tickled him. My lips pinched tight, and I knew I looked like my mother when she'd caught me talking in church. When was that? Last week. I nodded at Butter. He slipped his reflective sunglasses out of his shirt pocket and put them on as I gave my final appeal. This is your last chance to tell me what you know about the disappearance of Miss Dana Westbrook. If you continue to refuse my request for information, Bird reached out quick as a pickpocket and snatched my pen. Before I could move, he brought it down with all his might through my right hand. He looked triumphant until he noticed that Butter hadn't attempted to stop him or help me. And then I hadn't screamed. Also, there was no blood. Oh, I'm sorry you felt the need to do that, Mr. Bird. My voice was calm as before. No change in the volume or timbre. I wedged the pen out of my left hand by rocking it back and forth with my right until it loosened enough for me to pull it out. Truly a shame you decided not to cooperate. It would have been easier for both of us. Bird swallowed, his eyes on my careful movements, as I saw the revulsion on his face as my left hand appeared, stiff as a corpse's, the brand new stigmata-like hole through its dry, desiccated meat. He tried to scoot his seat backward away from me, but his gaze was fixated now. Light emanating from the hand, its gnarled digits cracking as I attempted to straighten the gray, withered flesh. He moaned as his body twitched almost imperceptibly. Impressive, I thought. Most people can't even move that much when they see my hand. Do you know what this does, Mr. Bird? His eyes moved frantically left and right, either saying no or looking for an escape. I'd hope you wouldn't have to find out. I stood and walked around the table to stand behind him. Try as he might, he was frozen in place, gaze fixated straight ahead, where my empty glove lay abandoned on the table. If you'd revealed your secrets earlier, you may have been spared this, but you've kept them locked up in this little mind of yours, shut behind a tiny little door. This, I let the weight of my arm lay heavy on his shoulder, open stores. As I rounded the desk once more, I let my arm slip from his shoulder, and I dragged the thick nails of the hand across the table, leaving the tooth-aching noise of scratched metal in the air. Bird's eyes watered. You may not believe me, Mr. Bird, but I feel sorry for you. I'm told this hurts. When I heard the soft click of the officer's tape recorder, I placed my hand on Bird's head.
Homegoing by Eden Royce. Everything in life you told me not to do, I done. It was the saddest thing my son had ever said to me, and the scariest. But this was his way of getting back at me, removing the blame from himself and placing it on my shoulders. I don't know how long I sat there silent thinking about why he'd said it until I felt his eyes on me, wide and waiting. He wanted my reaction. I realized as I regarded him through the prison visiting room, plexiglass barrier, scuffed with the remains of so many other fights before ours. Like what? I asked. No, Mama. His tone made me jump and I scolded myself for being so nervous, so scared of my little boy's voice, full and bursting with anger and desperation. You're supposed to ask me why. Oh, I said, why? Only now did I realize how obedient I could be to my son, but not to my husband or to my vows. I sat there in my best church hat marveling. He sat back in his chair, hair buzzed, almost bald, revealing his pale scalp. A faint raised scar shaped like a sickle marked where he'd been hit with a beer bottle five years before. It was a fight over some worthless girl. That's how he'd known, he told the papers. When he fought over some girl and she'd walked away with a loser that he'd beaten to a pulp, that he'd vowed never to care about another woman. To make them all pay. Upon seeing the scar, his M.O. solidified in my mind, Jesus, take the wheel. I was thinking like one of those TV shows now. Modus operandi, method of operation. I'd felt lightheaded in the courtroom when the prosecutor described it. Out of body. I floated above the pictures of my son's handiwork. I was beyond the words of the medical examiner. Wounds consistent with a curved blade. A lot of force. Brutal force. The cutting words of the prosecuting attorney yanked me from my days with just as much viciousness. Severed heads, their scalps always found in yards, always away from the rest of the body. The defendant's semen dried into their long hair. Eight young women, the prosecutor had said, his Armani suit tailored to his lean frame. He looked at the jury over the top of his trendy yuppie glasses, all under 25. I'd fainted. A guard appeared in the door behind my son. Phillips, five minutes. Now I shook my head again. Why? Because you let me. He picked his teeth and looked at his finger. You've always let me do anything I wanted. (laughs) So it's all my fault. I wanted to scream at him and storm out. Then I'd never need to have another body search in order to visit this festering hole south of Hades. Never have to endure another seedy, depraved look from the men on the inside. Their sweat rank with the stench of captivity. Men really did devolve without women. I stood and left without another word. My legs and back stiff, wooden. Sweat ran down the middle of my back, under my suit, and into the waistband of my pantyhose. When I got to my car, I turned on the air conditioning maximum. Pray for him. Lord, just make it okay. I didn't see any of the road the entire drive home. When I opened the door, the rich, meaty smell of roasted chicken hit my nose and my stomach roiled. 
hat carefully placed on the hall table, I greeted my husband. Visit went all right today. Mm-hmm. Bill's head was buried in the Sunday paper. Likely the food section. His roasted chicken was the best I'd ever tasted. But right now, acid bubbled up my throat and threatened the back of my tongue. My hand shook as I removed my suit jacket and hung it over the back of the chair, content to stand in the living room in my bra and camisole, letting the icy air chill my damp skin. He looks okay, just thinner. When he finally comes home, Bill interrupted me, his tone one not to argue with. He's not coming home, Agnes. He's our son. Even to me, the word sounded weak as water. He's a murderer, a serial killer. He threw down the paper and ran a hand through his thinning hair. God, all those girls, it makes me sick. One day, he'll get out. I prayed to get the verdict overturned. He didn't do all that. That, what they said he did. The room swam, and I grabbed the back of the chair to steady myself. There's a chance he'll still get out. Not as long as I'm here, there's not. My heart tripped and fell into nothingness. My voice was a stage whisper as I repeated the words that had been my mantra all through the investigation and the trial. He's our son. We raised him. Well, we fucked up, didn't we? Bill stood up from his recliner and grabbed his jacket from a peg in the hallway and stormed out the door. I ran after him to the garage door, my stocking feet slipping on polished hardwood. Where are you going? He didn't answer. He just got in his car and drove away. Some men would have peeled out, screeching their tires and stinking smoke, but Bill buckled his seatbelt and checked his mirrors before reversing into the cul-de-sac and away. And he didn't come home until five hours later. When he did... He wouldn't let me pull him into a conversation again. After that so-called argument, Bill never discussed hard in prison again. If he had, or at least come to see his son once, maybe I wouldn't have let that guard escort me to my car. And I definitely wouldn't have listened to him when he said he didn't live far away. Maybe then, his offer of coffee and a sympathetic ear would have gone unanswered. But... I stayed against my better judgment in the guard's bed and in my son's corner. The next two months of visits to Harden tumbled in a blur. Today wouldn't be so kind. You know something? My baby isn't going to be anything like me. Your what? Heat rushed to my face and my heartbeat sounded loud in my chest like hail on a rooftop. My son ran his hand over the peach fuzz on his face. My wife is having a baby. Oh yeah, and I got married. Didn't I tell you? It's the only way you get to fucking here. From a chick, anyway. Heat boiled over inside me. How do they let him marry? Who would marry a man convicted of murdering eight women? I stuttered, but no coherent words came out. My shock and dismay brought a smile to my son's face. I'll tell you more about it next time. I gotta go. It's conjugal visit day. He pushed back his chair with a scrape that sent my teeth on edge and strutted out of the room, his oversized orange jumpsuit baggy around his waist and hips. 
As the guard ushered him out, he winked at me over his shoulder. I walked to the visitation rooms in a daze, my short steps almost heel to toe. All around me, the prison flashed by and fast forward, the movie reel in my mind of my son growing up was the only normal thing. Holding him for the first time, teaching him to swim, clapping and whistling for him at the championship soccer game. At the front desk, I fished around in my handbag for my keys. The young woman approached the desk where I stood and handed the attendant a box wrapped in bright paper. When she gave her name as Mrs. Phillips, I turned to look at her squarely. Thin, not fashionably so. Her eyes had a dull look, sunken and vacant, resigned, desperate. But it was her hair that made me snap. Long, lank, blonde hair. He did it, you know. He killed them. I could hear my voice rising, becoming hysterical. What are you doing here? Why are you visiting him? The girl shrugged, unsurprised by my outburst. Why are you? Her dead tone gave me a start, which quickly turned to itchy fear. But somewhere deep inside, I felt a need to defend myself. Because I'm his... The word caught on my tongue, and I bit it back. I didn't want to speak it aloud. Didn't want to claim him or his deeds. But I was tied to this monster. I had held him in my arms for years, inside me for months. And still, the need to deny him burned deep. Before I could cough the word out, the girl turned away. Then she followed the guard through the sliding iron bars, leaving me inside. I knew with a certainty that hadn't been there before. All of the support and faith ebbed from me as I walked to my car. False hope giving way to resignation that was somehow freeing. There would be no celebration. My son was not coming home. Ever. And now finally, I didn't want him to. Empty of spirit, I drove for miles I ended up at a hole-in-the-wall fish shack on the outskirts of the city on the way out to Estito Island. I hadn't been down this way since I married Bill, and we set up life in suburbia. The scent of frying peanut oil drew me inside, and I dusted off a seat near the door with a napkin before settling into it. Not many people were there. Sundays were days to eat at home with family, if you had it. So, the young woman behind the counter wasn't delayed in sauntering over to my table. She looked at me with her heavy-lidded eyes and the crack of chewing gum like gunfire. Yes, ma'am. I had no idea why I was here. I just didn't want to go home and face the end of my devotion. What would life be like if I just let my son go? No more visits. No asking the congregation to pray for him. How do I give up on him? What's the special? I let my geishi show, and in my consonants smeared to nothing but vowels stretched out to their limits. If she was surprised, the waitress didn't show it. Widened platter, fried, or baked, two sides, dinner roll. <laughs> my son's favorite. I hadn't fried fish for him since he was a child. Too messy, too much grease. The smell clung to my curtains and to the couch and to the carpet, and it wouldn't come out. 
only time faded the smell. Not the aggressing effort of cleaners and air fresheners. Two fried platters to go. The meals were ready in minutes, packed with plasticware and surplus of napkins. When I got home, the bag was still searing hot, and I removed it carefully from the floor of the car. I'm so sorry to be late. My apology to Bill I'd worked on in the car. I was hours late and I hadn't called. So unlike me, I'd tell him the truth about the baby and say I'd needed time to get myself a handle on the new addition to the family. But I picked up dinner. Bill sat at the dining room table, head in his hands, cordless phone on top of the folded newspaper. No smells wafted from the kitchen. I placed the bag on the table and lowered myself into the chair across from him. What is it? The strength in my voice surprised me. He's gone. I didn't need to ask who. When? How? I just came from there. A few hours ago. Poison. He shook his head. From a cake some young woman brought him. Where does a girl get cyanide? Bill raised his eyes to me and I saw my emotion reflected. Pain, confusion, and relief. They said it was was some kind of wedding cake. Uh, Did he? He said he did, but I didn't know before today. And I don't know when it happened. I plucked the plastic tie on the bag. What about the girl? God answers prayer. They shared a slice of cake. He's at the morgue. We're supposed to go down there. We will. I opened the bag and pulled out the styrofoam containers of fried fish, potato salad, and spicy collard greens, their scents entwining to make a soup of fragrance that would fade. In time. After dinner. Stay tuned for a short interview with the author after these brief credits. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary. You can be part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards, like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. The Wicked Library is sponsored by the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. Brought to you by a team of storytellers and whiskey lovers. They bring culture to life through storytelling every week. You can find them over at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com and, of course, in iTunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You may also enjoy their fully scored production of Beowulf. Find links to their show in the sidebar of our website. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. Ninthstory.com All audio recorded in-house at Ninth Story Studios is recorded on Rode microphones. Find out more information about their great products over at Rode.com 
That's R-O-D-E dot com. A big thank you to Rode for helping us make this show sound so good. Complete credits and full show notes, including links to the work of all the ladies featured in today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com slash 710. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. And now, our interview with the author. Welcome to Sub-Basement 9 of the Wicked Library, my friends. I'm Jeanette Andromeda from HorrorMade.com and the Night Story Podcast, and today we're talking with the author of today's stories, Eden Rice. Hi, Eden. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, We were previously uh, talking about how the fact that the time difference is interesting. Aiden's ready for dinner, and I obviously am still getting my brain to wake up this morning, but we're here. (laughs) (laughs) I like the time difference. And um, what's I I found that so interesting, Aiden, that you originally came from Charleston, South Carolina, and now you're in England? Yes. um, I moved to England... Oh, gosh, it's a little over two years now. Oh, wow. (laughs) Quite a transition from Charleston. I would say so, especially weather-wise. Yes, that was one of my bigger adjustments was the weather. But um, thermal socks (laughs) and cups of hot tea and or coffee have made the transition much smoother. I'm glad to hear that. Are you enjoying it over there? I am. It's... There are actually a lot of similarities that I find between, I live in the southeast um, of England. Um, They call it the Garden of England. And there are a lot of similarities between Charleston, where I grew up. There's a lot of um, coastline. There's a lot of um, similarities in the way that the, the people think and interact. And it's very sit down, have a cup of coffee, have a cup of tea, let's talk about what's going on. So it's that part of it wasn't an adjustment at all. But um, wearing a jacket up through probably April is. <laughs> yeah, that would be a little different. Eden, can you tell me a little bit more about your Speculative Literature Foundation's Diverse Worlds grant? Because that sounds exciting. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, the Speculative Literature Foundation gives away I believe it's four grants per year. Um, One of them is for Diverse Worlds, which is the one that I won. And it is given to the author that presents work that best highlights the diverse world that we live in. So um, I was completely shocked and honored to get that email saying that I'd won for 2016 with um, an excerpt from my first novel, which nice. was um, a NaNoWriMo project. Oh, that's awesome. Enough. So um, I'm looking forward to that novel sort of making its way to the forefront at some point. I don't know exactly when, but I'm extremely encouraged that um, the excerpt that I sent in from that was enough to, to get me that recognition. So is that one still in process? Are you working on that and getting it out into the world now? Um, the novel is actually finished. Um, I have been seeking 
agent representation and publisher representation and all of that good stuff. And it's the first time that I've really done that. I've either submitted to anthologies, short stories, or I have self-published my collections of short stories. So this is my first uh, foray into agenting and selling myself and all of that. But I think it's a good storyline and I hope that it's going to see the light of day at some point soon. So we'll see. Nice. So do you feel like, because I noticed a lot of your work on Amazon was short story collections. Do you feel more comfortable writing short stories or is that just, I don't know, how you're getting into the bigger stuff? I've always loved reading short stories. Um, I love novels as well, but short stories to me are just the perfect way to really get to learn about an author. So I, if someone has a short story collection, I'll typically seek that out first before I invest myself in reading a novel from that person. So it's how I started writing is short stories. And with NaNoWriMo happening for 2016 and 2015, those were the only two full-length novels that I've written. And I was nervous about writing a full-length novel because it seemed like this huge thing that other people did. Other writers write novels. I'm a short story writer. I was amazed that I managed to finish a novel project because I just, I went into it all nerves and all the flutter. But once I started, it was a completely different experience than writing a short story. So I'm really pleased with how, with how both of them turned out. My NaNoWriMo for 2015 and the one I just finished for 2016. So it's like now that I've done a novel, now I feel like there might be more in there to come. We'll see. I love hearing that. I love that NaNoWriMo has really helped people get past that like nervousness of writing bigger things. Because um, it, it, did you find that the interaction was part of what helped you spur on or was it kind of the accountability of it? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, for someone like me that that does short stories and interviews and book reviews and things of that nature that tend to be much shorter, I'm a very concise writer. And writing short stories gives me a chance to present almost a moment in time. And having other people talk about what their struggles were during the NaNoWriMo process makes you feel less alone as a writer. Because writing can be an extremely lonely business sitting for hours on end in front of the computer. (laughs) So knowing that there are other people out there that have the same struggles is helpful. And also that little counter that you have to fill out every day with, this is the number of words I've done. Yeah, That's pretty motivating as well. (laughs) When you see that little bar just not quite climb to the height that it's supposed to for that day. You think, oh, I either need to stay up or get up early tomorrow, or I'm not going to, I'm not going to let this beat me. <laughs> so it's absolutely more motivating than being completely on your own to to write a novel project, especially if it's your first time. Uh, yeah, definitely. Suddenly, let's talk about it. <laughs> exactly. Do you think going forward with more novels, you're going to use some of those things that you've learned through NaNoWriMo to help motivate you to stay on track? I think so. I think 
once you learn what your particular process is for getting work done, because it's different for everyone, Mm -hmm. you have to go back to it when you find yourself getting off track. It happens to almost everyone, that lack of focus. And sometimes you need either to train yourself to be focused, or you have to just put in place the right environment, close the door, put your headphones on, whatever it is that helps you get into that mindset. And I think that, I think that something like nano can help you build those, build those parameters to work within to make it easier for you to succeed at the end of the project. Definitely. It's like a little incubator. Just you have to do it or just fry on the way, I guess. <laughs> but it's it's great in that it doesn't, you know, there's there's no judgment if you haven't finished or you weren't able to finish for whatever the reason is. But there's some nice little perks if you do. Absolutely. That is my, apparently, absolutely is a word that is very New England. Um, just noticing that. <laughs> um, so going back to, you had mentioned that your short stories are kind of like exploring little moments in time. Hmm. Is that a theme that you like to work on in your short stories? Or what kind of things draw you to these moments in time that you explore? I think a lot of times it's, well, to be honest, it can be almost anything. I can watch a movie and I can think, you know what I would do with this? Or I'll pick out a character that maybe wasn't explored in a movie and give that person a story. It might be something that brought them to that point that's in the movie, or it might be a point afterwards, or I might, they might have a phrase that I sort of latch onto that I think almost deserves its own story. So I think that almost anything can be that spark of inspiration that makes a short story. And if it's 3,000 words, 5,000 words, something short, you can almost walk outside and see something happening and think, that's a story there that I can wrap some words around. It's, for me, a, a snippet in time is easier than maybe a three month time frame for a novel. Mm -hmm. But it's also something that can be really resonant with a reader. You know, you can make it really strong and really punchy. And you don't have to necessarily worry about all of the ebbs and flows that you have to for a novel. So you can just get that sort of kick in the face right off and not let go until the story ends. Definitely. Because and with like a novel the pacing is so important because you do have to have those ebbs as well as the flows. Yes. And I, I do like just in the few of your stories that I've read so far, how it, it really is. It's just like, whoop, it's like you're right at the crest of the wave and that's what you're experiencing for that moment. I agree. I think that that's where my love of short stories sort of started. And, you know, the Poe short stories, the Daphne du Maurier short stories, I think that's what led me to loving that intensity of short fiction. I love Poe. Um, what other authors did really like influenced your writing style? Um, that's hard to say because I read so much mm -hmm. and have always done so. Um, I think I already mentioned Du Maurier. I love 
that gothicness of her writing and with me being a Southern Gothic writer, just wanting to sort of pick up some of those ideas and then drop them in the, the social society of the South. And now that I live here, I have to say the American South because that's what people <laughs> ask me about. So I have to say the American South. Yep. A little different. <laughs> Slightly different. But I think that Poe as well is something or, or an author that I've read for years and still go back to and still find inspiring little tidbits to go back over and reread and, and look at the, the play of language. But as far as anything else, I read a lot of non-horror, to be honest. And I think that a lot of writers, it would serve them well to read in and out of the horror genre, because you never know exactly when you're going to find something to spark your interest or something that's probably going to even help you create that tension even more so than what you're able to do without reading non-horror. Yeah. Um, what kind of, what outside of horror do you like to read? I will read anything. I will read thrillers. I will read cozy mysteries. I will read, um, not sure what term to use, what's safe on this podcast, but I will actually read. <laughs> Shall I, I just say erotica? Because I saw you have quite a few of those as well. <laughs> I, do. I, I write romance and I've written erotica as well. Awesome. Um, I have lots of author friends on Facebook that write a variety of things. The only thing that I don't think that I really read much of, and I'm trying to change that this year, is nonfiction. I seem to stick very firmly within fiction as a genre, mm -hmm. but that's something I probably need to change looking forward. Just maybe get at least one or two nonfiction bits in there. It's amazing what, because I, I do the same thing. I read like tons of horror and little bits of other things and then nonfiction every once in a while. And it's, it's interesting what kind of storytelling comes out of nonfiction because they can't be as free with it in a lot of ways. So you kind of learn like what's essential in certain types of nonfiction writing. So yeah, read some more of that. I think it'll, it'll be good for your brain. I think so. <laughs> um, so now I want to talk specifically about your stories. Um, we heard Hand of Glory and Homecoming today. And with Hand of Glory specifically, I really love how effortlessly you just set the mood and the world in like the first few sentences specifically you had heat waves always brought out the murderers and the grip of mother nature had charleston's neck you know like the just like these very visual very powerful words all in a row together you know you crushed out the cigarette and the room was hotter than satan's bathwater, which made me giggle i loved that <laughs> um <laughs> With that kind of, it's so poetic and it's so visual. Um, how have you worked to cultivate that like specific style in your writing? Well, I don't know about necessarily working to cultivate it. I think that a lot of what I've read in the past and a lot of the folklore and stories that I grew up with, um, I grew up with a very oral storytelling tradition in my family. And in order to 
keep someone's interest, you have to use very powerful language and you have to use very evocative language because with reading on your own, sure, you can pick the book up and put it down whenever you're ready. If you get tired or your interest wanes or whatever have you. But if you're sitting somewhere and you're being told a story, that storyteller really has to draw you in. And I think that's where my love of language and creating atmosphere comes from with my writing, because I remember sitting and listening to family members tell stories and they were huge personalities and they just bled through into the stories that they told. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I will always remember is to create atmosphere first and draw your reader in. I can see that storytelling is so important. And when you get like a group of people who just tell stories constantly, like days will pass by and they'll have no idea because if they're a good storyteller, you're just in it. Absolutely. You're just immersed in, in the world that they're creating. Was there a particular person in your family that you would just like, at no matter how late a, a night it was getting to be that you just adored listening to their stories? Oh, gosh. It would be hard to pick just one, but my grandmother and my great aunt were probably the best storytellers. My great aunt was um, a root worker, hoodoo worker, not sure what term you'd be familiar with. And she would tell these stories about her clients and what they came to her for and what they were looking to have done and what their reactions were to her spells and her instructions. I always found it fascinating. And my grandmother grew up on a farm in upstate South Carolina and moved to Charleston to marry my grandfather. So she would tell stories of coming to a city like Charleston from an extremely rural environment. And they were always fascinating. So I think those are the two stories that I've always loved and always enjoyed, or the two storytellers, I should say that I've always loved and enjoyed listening to their tales because they could make anything fascinating. If they were sharing a recipe with you, it was never just the base ingredients. It was always some sort of story wrapped around it. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely love that. Do you think you draw on like those particular people when, well, you kind of said this already, you do draw on these particular people when you tell stories, but is there a particular one where you were really tapping into either your grandmother or um, your aunt. I'm, mi I'm mixing up things, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, I, dear coffee, please start kicking in. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the collection, which is called Spook Lights, um, it has both stories, Homecoming and Hand of Glory, in it. There's another story included in that collection called Hag Ride. And that definitely channels my great aunt. And it's very much a woman traumatized goes to a root lady to get a spell to, to fix her life, to fix her husband, to stop him from doing all the things that he's doing. And it's a very cautionary tale. And she cautions the woman of how there are forces at work that even she, as the magical conjure woman, may not be able to control. And if you're sure, we can do this. 
<laughs> but just know it may not end up the way you want it to. And I think that's one of the stories that I think I tapped very much into that Southern conjure background that I grew up with in order to create the story. There's a lot of ritual in it. Um, fabricated ritual because I don't want to actually <laughs> give out any root working spells. I don't want anybody in the middle of the marsh at midnight, you know, digging up graveyard dirt or anything, but um, it's fabricated to give you the feel of what these spells sound and look like. That's awesome. And I'm glad you're like protecting the rituals too. Cause you know, someone's going to be like, Oh, I should try this. This is totally legit. Yes, <laughs> disclaimers of, Please do not try this at home. Please do not, especially with anything that might have a powerful and lingering effect. Mm -hmm. That is definitely something to be aware of because, you know, like, hey, let's call this spirit into the world. This is a great idea. Oh, now you're well, we, stuck with it. <laughs> we've all seen those movies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we should know better, yet... I don't think we do. <laughs> no, because it's the, oh, that happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. Right, It'll be exactly. Fine. It'll totally be fine. Um, and speaking of things that happen to other people and never to me or, you know, the person speaking is homecoming. I, you know, like I can, I totally felt that character's just like that mother's pain and and frustration with what was happening with her son and... I'm wondering, what what did you tap into when you were writing that story? I wish I knew because I'd do it again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> funnily enough, some of the stories in Spook Lights are previously published stories that I've oh. reworked for that collection. And as I was writing it and putting the stories together, I realized, this collection's a bit short. And I thought, I need another story. And I wrote Homecoming in one sitting. Wow. I, sat and <laughs> I need something. And I closed the door to, to keep my extraordinarily inquisitive kitten out <laughs> and um, wrote the story in one sitting, which I typically don't do. And it was something that just occurred to me. I thought... I've watched tons of cop shows and those lawyer shows where someone gets caught for the crime. They go to court and they debate and battle about yes or no, guilty, not guilty. And there's not a lot of focus on the mother in these stories a lot of times. It's if you do see her, she's angry or she's frustrated or she's lashing out or maybe she's just completely weeping in a corner but you very rarely get the emotional and visceral thought processes that she may go through in trying to keep true to her idea of this is my baby this is my child and yet he's done some horrible horrible things so that's where I got the idea I think that's beautiful because it is a story that no one focuses on. And yet, as you've shown, it's so full of of just emotion and possibility there. So I, I like the, you know, the weird corners that you go into. <laughs> 
I have very, I have a lot of those corners. <laughs> a lot of those very weird, strange corners. Or uh, diverse worlds, I should say. <laughs> diverse worlds, diverse corners. Diverse corners. Um, so one thing that I mentioned before we properly started recording was the fact that you narrated for Escape Pod, which is awesome. Um, do you know which episode that was? It was, actually, if I do a little bit of clicking here. That works. I can, I can probably find out. Here we go. It is episode 560. 560 for Escape Pod. Everyone should go listen to that because it is going to be awesome. Slash is awesome. I'm going to go listen to it after this. <laughs> so, Eden, where can people find you and uh, connect with you online? I am on Facebook at Eden Royce the Dark Geisha, which is the name of my blog. I am on Twitter at Eden Royce. I also have a website, which is EdenRoyce.com. I have a few other presence um, places where I'm present on social media, like Pinterest and Instagram, although I am horribly um, negligent in updating those. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard Twitter. to keep track of all of them. Yes. Twitter and Facebook is where I spend most of my social media time. Although this weekend I will be updating my website with, Spooklights 2, which is now out, and an anthology that I'm in of all Black women horror fiction and poetry writers um, called Psychorax's Daughters, which is coming out shortly. I think it's up for pre-order. So it should be coming out within the next few weeks, I hope. Sweet. Then we'll make sure that that ends up in our comment section slash in the links with the show notes. That's the term I'm supposed to use. Um, and everybody do make sure to check out Eden Rice's work and her new books coming out. We'll make sure to share those. And at the believe when this is airing, it is women in horror month. So it is. Eden, thank you for being part of our women in horror month and for being an amazing woman in horror. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. You're very welcome, and hopefully the Wicked Librarian will actually let you out of the basement. But uh, if not, enjoy your stay! <laughs> Bye everyone, and thank you for listening. Again, if you want any of these links, make sure to check out the show notes on thewickedlibrary.com. And you can learn more about Eden there as well. Bye! <laughs>